Welcome to Huddle Home Office. I'm Mark Legere. And I'm Trevor Nichols. Hello, Trevor Nichols. Hey, Mark. How's it going? It's going pretty good, Trevor. And you know what? No small talk about the weather today because we have the U.S. election to talk about. That's right. I have 85 tabs open on my browser. I'm checking literally every news site in existence. So <laughs> I've got the info. <laughs> we were, we were uh, you know, putting off right up to the last couple of minutes, Trevor, re- recording uh, an intro for this episode of the show because... You know, for days here, we just you know kept expecting that it would end, and it and it doesn't. And here we are now recording on a on a Friday afternoon, and it and it looks like um, you know it looks like uh, a, a Biden victory, uh, Trevor. But of course, we're we're reluctant to really say that. And uh, you know, I'm, I've got this feeling like like 15 minutes after after we finish uh, this intro, then um, something will be declared. <laughs> yes, as responsible news reporters, we can't technically say Biden has won, but. I think it's very, 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 very likely that that's the case. <laughs> I think so for sure. And I think it's funny because um, you know, several days ago, I think it was actually on uh, the day of the, on the it was the day of the election. Or it was the day before. I can't remember which for sure, Trevor. But you you had uh, published a piece on um, on who was going to be better for uh, the Atlantic Canadian economy, uh, Biden or Trump, and. And I remember publishing that piece and thinking, oh, this is going to be need to be updated, uh, you know, so quickly. We're going to be finishing publishing the piece and getting it online and we'll already be updating it um, with either a Biden or a Trump victory. And I guess <laughs> I guess I was wrong. Yeah, we were naively planning strategies to update it the night of the election. Oh, so naively. <laughs> <laughs> So, so bringing that focus, um, you know, to the Atlantic, uh, and I know we've been all been looking south, and uh, you know, waiting, waiting for the decision of the American people on who's going to be president. Um, you did take that look at uh, how all this uh, could impact it, Atlantic Canada, Atlantic Canada's economy. So, who did you who did you talk to for that piece? Um, I talked to uh, some senior policy manager from the Atlantic Chamber of Commerce. And I also talked to someone uh, from the Atlantic Provinces Economic Council. So a couple of sort of Atlantic-wide sort of people who are interested in what's happening in our economy, to say the least. And and what kind of things did they say to you? Because I know we, the people on the ground, I know there there are Trump supporters in the region for sure, um, depending on their politics, you know, but but by and large, we are an environment where, where most people are cheering for a Biden victory, but it isn't so clear when we come to look at the economy, is it? Yeah, no. And and I mean, there's definitely some of the things you would think of as being true are definitely true. You know, any economist will tell you that uncertainty is bad for business and bad for the economy. And, you know, Trump does come with a lot of uncertainty. Biden, should he be declared winner, will definitely bring a more certain sort of stable economic environment, which is obviously good for us in Atlantic Canada. But there are some things from a strictly economic perspective, you can say Trump might be better for us in some ways. Uh, I'm thinking specifically right now of of like the environmental regulations. So, you know, Trump pulled the United States out of the uh, Paris Climate Accord. Joe Biden wants to bring the United States back into that accord. And that will have direct impacts on uh, Canadian exports to the United States, right? Uh, if America is is assigned onto that uh, Paris Agreement, there's a pretty good chance a lot of our exports from Atlantic Canada could be slapped with tariffs if we're not meeting our greenhouse gas emissions there. So there there are those kind of things to think about as well. Yeah, for sure. And and, and there's also that kind of that, that larger discussion too around 
uh, development of fossil fuel energy resources because you know for even though we are starting to make that that shift and that transition as well, we still live in a region that's quite dependent on the Irving Oil Refinery, for example, and, and exports from that uh, refinery to the United States. We're still uh, the country as a whole is still dependent on the Alberta oil patch, and and you do have a you know a, a Joe Biden who has you know promised to in, in in earlier promises pledged to you know shut down the uh, the Keystone XL project, right? Um, as as the United States and under you know democratic leadership would seek to move the the economy faster away from fossil fuels for sure. Like Biden has specifically said he would he would basically uh, you know like as you say get rid of that pipeline. Whereas Trump has has expressed his support for it, which you know you'll know our federal government here in Canada has also supported the Keystone Pipeline. So you know those are those are definitely factors for sure. Yeah, definitely. And, and and part of the reason I wanted to talk to you, but I have to apologize, Trevor, because um, being our, our Halifax reporter, the guy, uh, one of the guys waving the flag for us in Nova Scotia, um, the guest that we have on the show today uh, is uh, Herb Emery. And he's the, the program chair of uh, something called the JDI Roundtable on Manufacturing Competitiveness. And uh, he's a, um, a professor in, econo- in economics at, at UNB. Uh, you know, and the con- the conversation we have uh, on the show today is very much uh, focused on the New Brunswick uh, manufacturing sector and the New Brunswick economy. Uh, so, Trevor, I think you and I at, at some point uh, soon are going to actually have to bring Nova Scotia into this conversation on the podcast uh, through through a good guest for sure. Um, so I do apologize, Trevor, because we're, we're leaving the Nova Scotia out of this one. That's fine. Poor old Nova Scotia. We'll we'll survive without the spotlight, I guess, for a little while. <laughs> You're so used to it, you know. You can take a back seat. <laughs> yeah. So, and but wanting to bring you on and talk about, you know, the people you had spoken to about the implications of this election, whether it's Biden or whether it's Trump, um, uh, because you know Herb and I had recorded this conversation um, earlier this week. Uh, you know, I didn't want the two of us to get bogged down in a in a conversation. Uh, about manufacturing as it relates to a lot of issues in the states that are just quite simply up in the air right now um, uh, with with uh, with the state of the U.S. election. And in any case, Serb had mentioned to me in our conversations, um, there are, and as you've stated yourself, uh, complexities uh, here. And, and a lot of the problems wouldn't go away, uh, whether it was Biden as president or whether it was Trump as president. We'd still face certain issues over tariffs. Um, and other sort of economic issues when it comes to the United States. Uh, and it ended up being a good thing, I think, you know, Trevor, because sometimes, you know, politics can dominate uh, these conversations and, pol- you know, conversations about U.S. politics can dominate conversations. So it was actually kind of freeing for Herb and I just to kind of, you know, park the park the conversation about, you know, the, the, the United States and our dependency on on exports to there and, and, and all the issues around around tariffs and, the U.S. economy recovering from COVID-19. We kind of parked a lot of that stuff, Trevor, and we were able to, you know, to really just zero in on what the strengths of the New Brunswick uh, manufacturing economy are and and what the challenges are. And, you know, because Herb is one of these people who dismisses the whole idea of, of calling manufacturing, a, a, you know, sunset industries uh, and believes they're still very, very important to the growth of, you know, not New Brunswick's economy, but the region's economy. And, um, so we need to remain, um, you know, focused on our current manufacturing strengths, even as we look to, you know, new 
new opportunities to to grow the economy, uh, you know, now and down the road. And and the the roundtable on manufacturing competitiveness is uh, it's really interesting because essentially it's a platform re- for research and discussion about the future of manufacturing in the province. Um, and and Herb is Herb is very you know, well positioned to have this kind of like really deep, rich conversation about where we are and where we're going with it. So I was very excited to have this conversation uh, with him. And, and, uh, you know, and I actually look forward, Trevor, to us uh, having the right conversation around uh, Nova Scotia's manufacturing sector down the road. That's right. Um, You know, great to see a a totally New Brunswick perspective, though, especially when it seems like all we can think about these days are, you know, districts in Pennsylvania and how their votes are coming in. So cool, cool to have a very New Brunswick centered discussion so we can really dig into some of those interesting issues this time around. (laughs) Yeah, well, we'll we'll go to that conversation, Trevor. And I, you know, I hope... uh, I hope the next time you and I chat, the uh, the U.S. election is uh, settled in the way both of us hope it will be. <laughs> Absolutely. Can't wait to see that happen. <laughs> All right. <laughs> All right. Well, let's go to the conversation with Herb. Hi, Herb. Hi, Mark. How are you today? I'm great. How are you doing today? Uh, enjoying the sunshine. Oh, is it the sun shining in Fredericton? Yeah. Isn't that always the way? It is. I make a joke about the fog, but I, you know, I do that all the time <laughs> being in St. John. Yeah. Um, and I actually haven't, I have to confess, I'm, I'm kind of in a, a basement office here in St. John and I've been working in a boardroom all morning. So I honestly don't know what the weather's like outside. Huh? So it's not just the mood that causes <laughs> those clouds. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, so tell me, you're, uh, are you working from uh, home in Fredericton right now? Yeah, the universities uh, remained on sort of a distance model. I mean, we're going to be that way through the winter term. So we're all set up to work remote. Uh, the interesting challenge was trying to decide if that was limiting us to working in the province or could we go anywhere globally, uh, which was a big discussion around COVID when the thinking was everyone would move here. Uh, but on the other side, <laughs> we also have to remember we're always competing with other places and opportunities there. No, exactly. Yeah. I, I, when I was preparing for our chat uh, this morning, um, I was reminded of a story that you told me um, when we talked about a, a year and a half ago. One of the most popular stories of all time that we've had in Huddle in its short history, its five-year history, is uh, a rebuttal piece that uh, our, um, that Alan Gates, one of the founders of Huddle, wrote in response to a McLean's article that got a lot of people in New Brunswick uh, worked up here. Uh, Can anything save New Brunswick? <laughs> it was this quite bleak piece um, that that McLean's had produced a feature on kind of the state of New Brunswick and the economy. And uh, Alan was quite exercised about all this, and and you know wrote a piece called "What McLean's Doesn't Understand About New Brunswick." And uh, it was hugely popular at the time. Um, it was kind of, you know, circulated all, all over New Brunswick and was one of the early pieces that we did that was really successful and connected with people. And I know from talking to you that uh, this article was coming, uh, coming out right around the time when you were accepting a job with UNB and coming from Alberta. Yeah, I was actually being sent it by my colleagues at Calgary who were having a good laugh that they felt I was leaving the sort of epicenter of success and wealth and everything else to go to the basket case. And luckily they've joined me since I've left. So I'll take credit that I held them afloat. Um, It's been an interesting timing to come through because 
that article when it came out was right at the transition from the Allward Higgs era into Gallant, where there was a lot of that kind of sunny ways hopefulness. And so it's also been important to remember that in the work I've been trying to do on economic growth of New Brunswick since then, it also is tied in with the narrative that the province was done because its old industries like manufacturing just weren't what we needed going forward. We needed to be ICT, we needed to be tech, and it was sort of kind of like uh, the spirit of youth wants to do something different. They don't want dad and granddad's industries anymore. And the longer I've lived here, the re the more I've come to realize that thinking is wrong, that instead what we've been doing is sort of being ashamed of where our strength has been, and we just haven't taken care of the opportunities that we actually have out there. And that's sort of been a, an ongoing battle since because there's a lot of political interest in the New Brunswick as a basket case story because it justifies a hard pivot to something that we don't know if it's going to work or not, away from something that is actually fairly predictable, which is making a lot of our resource-based industries. And in particular, St. John, as an economic engine, has really struggled since we've seen this pivot to wanting to be the more sophisticated IT society. When you were when you were making that move to come here, uh, how did you feel when you saw that piece? Like, had you had you done a lot of background work on on New Brunswick? Uh, did that did that take you by surprise? No, it actually didn't take me by surprise at all, and it was actually quite liberating because when you go to a place where it can't get any worse, uh, you can only go up, right? Um, whereas <laughs> Alberta, we were fighting a battle. We were sort of at the peak and wondering what was going to happen when we knew you couldn't stay there anymore. But these stories, they're going on across the country, and it's sort of an attitude that's coming out of central Canadian media, which is to run down the regional economies, to run down people living in those provinces. And again, it's sort of a narrative that the important part of Canada is central Canada, and the federal government should be focusing on that. And a lot of it, when you get to New Brunswick, we're doing the same thing to the northeast of the province and a lot of the media so the Northeast is the basket case. And in a lot of cases, what we know with successful growth is someone has to stick up for you and someone needs to be a champion and someone needs to be giving a positive message because negativity is the best way to drive out investment and it's the best way to sink your ship. Yeah. And, and you know, on that on that point, Herb, like I've, I've often wondered one of the reasons why I think that that article hits so close to home uh, for a lot of people in New Brunswick is that a lot of us actually share a sense of that pessimism uh, ourselves. And we also don't, you know, a lot of us don't have a, a, a good handle on our current strengths and how to build on them. And, you know, it, it, it leads me a question to you, like, and I know you've looked into a lot of this in the time since you've been here, like what are, so what are our current strengths in manufacturing? Well, it's, it's actually kind of funny that I just want to touch on the belief that, things aren't great here. Like New Brunswick objectively is a high income economy, just low income for Canada, which is one of the highest income economies. Uh, we haven't had the same growth as the rest of the country, but the standard of living is pretty high along, especially the Route 2 corridor. So in a sense, it's kind of interesting to watch a population crying poor uh, when in fact the population is doing extremely well. This is not the the economic challenge of the 1970s or the 1940s when you really had some deep poverty and deep inequities in society. So it's just interesting to me that there's a belief that things are so bad and that leads to a tendency to ignore uh, the value added coming out of uh, 
pulp and paper and wood products is the same as it was at its peak in the mid 2000s. And so this sunset industry, as it's called, has actually been one of the main drivers of transformation to modern technologies, uh, integration, consolidation in the whole sector, and globally competitive. And before the problem was the government supported a system of small, non-competitive mills. And when the world shakeout came in, we lost a bunch, but the ones still standing uh, are pretty powerful in that market. We've got the largest oil refinery in Canada, and we don't produce oil. So the fact that there's a non-integrated refinery located here exporting into the United States is really one of the more incredible things to ever think about. Most provinces have lost their refinery from their integrated majors, and they're just importers. So you get those traditional industries, and of course, McCain's would be another big success story, but you can go up. There's large companies. Cook Aquaculture is another huge success, globally competitive acquiring companies. But what I'm trying to point to is that the globally competitive firms that we have that are big for New Brunswick, but still globally not large, are still coming out of our traditional resource-based strength. And this is despite the fact government policies and initiatives have not been trying to make those sectors successful like they have in the past. They've been trying to push diversification of the economy into something other than the resource industries. And what we've seen as a consequence is a lot of the growth in this province has been a long route too, uh, in the Moncton and Fredericton areas in particular at the expense of the Northeast and St. John, which is where the traditional industries had their strength. How how were we once, you know, supporting and bolstering those industries and, and now we're moving away from that? Like, give me a sense of, of, of the history of that from your point of view. Well, uh, there's a lot of them. We're do- doing some work on a century of economic development in New Brunswick uh, with Sarah McRae, who's my postdoctoral fellow uh, at my institute at UNB. And the the way to think of it is in the past, government understood that they needed to get to secondary manufacturing to get away from exporting commodities. They needed to move up the value chain. They needed to increase productivity. So initially, that was a strategy of attracting multinational major companies like International Paper uh, to New Brunswick. And they were doing it with uh, concessions on property tax, uh, access to water rights. Uh, The big one for the... uh, province used to be what was called power for industry, which is where the province, with the help of the federal government, built a lot of generating assets like uh, the hydro dams along the St. John River. And that created a low low cost energy source that attracted a lot of the mining, smelting, the pulp and paper, and the other big industries that were really driving a lot of the economic growth after World War II. Uh, After that, what we saw was it was a shift to using federal grant money through programs like DRE and FRED, uh, early precursors to ACOA, where the province was able to use those as incentives to attract industry to locate in New Brunswick, often to export into places like uh, Europe and the United States. Uh, But again, there was always a logic to it that we had a manufacturing base, this was a producing economy, and the fixation was really on making sure that this was a profitable location to export from. And one other example I can give is historically there's been transportation subsidies to the region to offset some of the challenges that come from being uh, a smaller jurisdiction, unlike Ontario, with a more decentralized population. And in the 1990s, those transportation subsidies went away. And that, again, was one big hit that uh, started to hit some of our industries, uh, particularly the more footloose ones. You'll notice that the companies that stay and scale 
tend to be the ones with the founders based in the province. And so that's also been an interesting dynamic over the time, which is the province seems to treat external companies much more friendly than it's homegrown. And that's something that I know you're aware of in St. John because people aren't sure how to handle uh, big companies, particularly if they're based here. Right. In, in terms of understanding uh, their their place in, in the economy and, and, and the power of their kind of job creation and export capacity? Well, one of the examples is everyone refers to large companies here as monopolies, which they're not. They're exporting into global markets where they're competing, which is where their fixation on keeping costs containable is about maintaining that competitiveness with other jurisdictions. The complaint in New Brunswick is really, if anything, they're what we would call a monopsonist, which is a large single buyer of an input like labor or control of forest resources. But again, the province used to market uh, affordable labor and abundant labor and long-term timber rights as competitive advantages of uh, producing in New Brunswick. Business stability, long-term supply commitments uh, of inputs to make sure that we would get the international papers and companies like Miranda locating here. And along the way, it was also some of the homegrown companies were doing a good job of moving into the turf of the multinationals. Right. I I had this uh, conversation uh, several weeks ago with uh, Donald Savoie about his his new book on on Irving Oil. And and we were having this conversation about, you know, being a globally competitive company out of a small place like New Brunswick uh, and, and how you talked about that in terms of whether or not it was a monopoly. And, uh, and, and he, at one point I, I was, I was talking about, you know, the, the global debate right now is largely centered in the U S around, you know, antitrust, uh, and the size of companies like Facebook and, and Amazon. And, and, and I think I kind of carelessly made comparisons of Facebook and Amazon to, 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 you know, to Irving oil, for example, um, in, in how we talk about monopolies. And, uh, he kind of like came back and said, like, like, this is not like, if you're looking for the Facebook of the oil industry, it's not Irving Oil, it's it's Shell and, and, and other companies like that. Is that kind of like the kind of distinction you're trying to make on how we, we look at these big companies? Oh, that's it. Exactly. It's if traditionally a monopolist would be someone like the guy who owned the telephone company and the guy who owned the, the power company and you only had a choice of buying from that company. And it's like the company store type idea that I'm not allowed to go and find a competing supplier so I can get a better price. That's not New Brunswick. New Brunswick has these companies uh, which are globally competitive, which means they're competing with large companies from other countries to get market share in a place like the United States. And if they can't provide the goods on demand at the price that the market's willing to bear down there, their market's not here, then they're going to lose that market share and we're going to lose our jobs in this region. So the frustration that comes in is that, and this is part of society's fixation on inequality, is there's a perception when you see wealth that it's an ill-gotten gain and it's coming off of your back as opposed to you were really good at doing something. And so we have this huge agenda in Canada right now, which is to restrain the power of big companies. Uh, We're talking now about trying to deal with Facebooks and everyone else with taxation. We're talking about dealing with dead money of people who are in business. But it's all about trying to lever out what we would call the unearned profits of industry and put it towards the middle class is sort of the logic of it. And this is something that's really flared up since 2008, uh, since the financial crisis meltdown. 
it's a repeat of what's happened over history, which is when inequality seems to get large because you have success in your economy, there is then a tendency to see envy come in and you want to see a tax policy to spread the wealth around. The most famous example in New Brunswick would be the Equal Opportunities Agenda of Louis Robichaud, uh, which was really not about spreading the wealth across individuals as much as spreading it across regions and locations in the province. So trying to locate mills where it would be to an advantage, trying to locate an extra mill so that you could create competition for the incumbent that was there to drive wages up, things along those lines. So very good populist politics, but terrible for long run economic sustainability. Looking at that from from the 60s to now, what are the long term negative uh, repercussions of of those policies then that, that still exist today? Well, the biggest one that's most visible, and I not I don't want to call them negatives because the equal opportunities also generated a lot of amazing outcomes in terms of uh, better education outcomes, uh, addressing really dire poverty in places like uh, the Acadian Peninsula and things along those lines. So it's really more you can always get short run wealth uh, with a policy that sort of defies the economics or business conditions. And you can use government money to offset it. So it was an era in the 1960s and 70s called forced growth. The problem with that is always sustainability. So you're putting real resources into keeping up a company that's not economic uh, in terms of the markets they're operating in. And you hit a point where either the taxpayers won't foot the bill anymore. In our case, the federal government decides they're not sustaining the level of transfers to the province anymore and you get caught short. And at that point, you realize the company you attracted in was on the periphery of their uh, constellation. And when they rationalize production, you're the first to go. That's different than if you're a core region where you have your homegrown companies that when they start to contract or rationalize, they tend to keep their homegrown operations going first and withdraw from their from their periphery. So the forest growth was typically bringing in peripheral plants to compete with our incumbents to get some more short-term gains and to use our forest resources more rapidly uh, was a lot of that goal. And it wasn't based on a sustainable market uh, condition in the province or sustainable industrial structure, which the rest of the world was pushing towards larger companies and more concentration. But in North America, we don't like industrial concentration. And so there's a tendency, uh, particularly through the federal government, to introduce means to diminish the market power of large companies. Unless, of course, it's a telecom company, then they tend not to help the little guys come in there as much. But generally, what you see is Canadians don't like large corporations. But now we seem to be in New Brunswick um, returning to that, especially with forestry, right? Like we seem to be be left with um, uh, fewer large players. Well, we don't have fewer large players. The industry always seemed to support what was called the... Uh, I'm trying to remember the pulp triumvirate. There was sort of three large companies over the last century that were operating and it gets punctuated in the sixties and seventies with the sudden addition of a lot more mills uh, to sort of increase the number of players on the field. And when the rationalization hit in the mid two thousands, it was sort of those marginal mills of the multinationals that tended to go with the exception of Dalhousie, which was a longstanding mill of international paper but the incumbent companies that were here, once the shakeout occurred, they picked up a lot of the uh, production. Our value added in GDP from the sector is back to what it was at the peak. And so other places like Ontario, which never recovered 
the full value of their forest operations that were lost over the same period. New Brunswick responded brilliantly in a sense because we had some of these homegrown companies. Sort of setting the table for, uh, you know, talking more about how we could be better supporting, you know, the uh, what you call the incumbent or traditional industries we have now. Where, what are our strengths right now in manufacturing? Well, when we map it out, you'll find that uh, the largest number of firms is in things like food processing, particularly fish. Uh, <laughs> so we have fish, then we have um, the forest product sector, but then we also have a lot coming in with uh, machinery and equipment, metals, fabrication. And a lot of those were industries that were seeded in the 1970s and 1980s with a lot of those grants to try and diversify. So we have, compared to a lot of the region, a fairly diverse industrial base, but compared to a place like Ontario, Quebec, it's a very narrow industrial base. And so the big question we always have is, is our, <laughs> is our strength in a, always in our traditional resource sectors, in which case we would think about policies that make sure that those producers have what they need in terms of feedstocks uh, into their mills and operations and we would make sure that they've got the labor supply available to produce like cook aquaculture right now is struggling to find labor in their operations even though objectively they're they're pretty good paying jobs with benefits but the attitude in new brunswick now is these sectors don't pay the right wages or you can do better doing something else that no one ever seems to specify so there's a lot of strength there but it's going back to the traditional resource-based sectors. There's a lot of interest right now in trying to get back more into agriculture, which is a sector that's atrophied over the last 30 years. We've taken land out of production, but we're starting to see innovation into things like hemp and cannabis, that if it moved to the open field, there might be some potential to get derivative products like CBD oil going. There's a lot of opportunities for innovation in terms of just doing things under glass with greenhouses and geothermal. And so we have to keep thinking that there are opportunities in traditional industries, but we have to think about government enabling the innovation and investment that will help the operators and producers get to the frontier and be competitive. Generally speaking, what, what is the economic impact of manufacturing in New Brunswick? Like where, where does it sit in terms of its, its impact on the economy? Well, it's one of the largest sectors, and it's a challenge to measure because the refinery is such a huge part of it today, even though that's really a post-1990 development. I think it accounts for half of the value added in manufacturing. But let's suppose that you've got 30,000 employees in manufacturing, which is about 10% of the total workforce in New Brunswick, which is a large sector. Uh, it's a fairly important one, and GDP is going to scale somewhere around there. But these are disproportionately the higher paying jobs in our economy. So when you think about a wealth creator, it may only be 10 to 15 percent of your economy. But you put a multiplier on that into your service sector. And that's where you start to see a lot of the impact coming through the spread effects. When you start to think about all the imports we do, because we can't grow a lot of things like bananas and oranges, we need exports, uh, something that we can sell to someone so that we can get the money that we need to buy the things that we can't produce here. So the export economy is what drives us. It comes out of our manufacturing base. And the more we can export, the more we're able to import. And this is how we get our high incomes and how we get our high standard of living. What roadblocks are in place like right now? Like what are, are what are the, the policy decisions that we're making uh, that are not supporting uh, the growth of, of manufacturing and sort of paying sort of due respect to the impact of the industry and the challenges that 
various manufacturers face? Well, I would say that the two that come to top of mind, so there's sort of a hierarchy of them. The ones that are more general, there's no champion for the sector in government or even in the general public right now. So if manufacturers have an issue that they're trying to raise or business in general, what you tend to see is that they don't get uh, an empathetic ear from government or from uh, the general public. It, it was probably stronger under the previous government than the current one, but Again, everyone's very guarded here about the business sector. With There's a complaint people kind of view, they can suck it up and take it. Whereas in other provinces, what you'll see is when the business sector says there's an issue, you see a response because there's more of an awareness of how important those businesses are. Uh, but if I look at how the CFIB is treated when they raise the alarm bell about what COVID's doing to small business, it's almost like... Uh, People are laughing at it or saying, don't take it seriously. These guys are making it up just to get an advantage. It's a serious problem. And so there's an attitude shift that needs to happen that you need a champion for the sector because you want to create wealth and you want to grow. And I will say in New Brunswick, it's not clear that everyone wants this economy to grow. There's a lot of views that growth is unnecessary. And in fact, it comes with things like environmental degradation. They would just prefer to stay the way things have been since 2010 than to return to the earlier economy, which was growing rapidly uh, around the resource exports. The second one is there's just no consideration by government and policymakers of the big picture impacts of some of the policy decisions that are made. We've seen good news lately about they've stopped the bleeding on work safe premiums that uh, abruptly doubled under the Gallant government when they changed the uh, role of a tribunal, which was leading to much larger settlements that weren't priced into the worksafe premiums. And as a consequence, you had a situation where a cost to labor, which everyone assumed was small, is actually a real headache and a real problem for uh, labor-intensive businesses to pay those extra premiums. And so we saw a lot of business struggles just around what you would call a well-intentioned decision around work safe and protecting injured workers to one effectively giving them a pension in the end, which it's not financed to do, without paying attention to what it would do to the bottom line of companies that are trying to compete and export. The next one that comes in is you would go to power rates. And in a lot of cases, it's not the level of them that matters, it's the predictability. It would always be better to have a lower, a lower power price like we had in New Brunswick by design before 2006, if you care about your large industries. But on the other side, business night likes to have stability. They like to know what it's going to cost to do something next year. And in general, we've had a business climate since I've moved here where there's very little predictability. And a big prominent example on that would have been the debate over carbon pricing. What was the scheme going to be? Who was going to pay it? When was it going to be approved? Uh, why aren't we just harmonizing with Nova Scotia? And even if we got to the right decision, it just took three or four years to get there. So in the meantime, when you're looking at where our industry's uh, investing, a lot of the incremental investment that could have been done in New Brunswick, companies in New Brunswick were investing elsewhere to do their next tranche of uh, production. So it's kind of a silent death that starts to come in when you create these uncertain conditions or hostility towards business, or you're not willing to do the training programs or attract the labor that's needed to keep these plants operating. Uh, temporary foreign workers during COVID was another example of that, where uh, we made a decision on public health to not allow them in initially, and it probably sent some jobs over to Nova Scotia. So we always need a government that's at least thinking about the business se sector front and center when decisions are made, and not just assuming that 
profits are massive in, among businesses and they can absorb whatever hit you want to put on them. It's not a matter of levering profits out of these businesses. We have to recognize we all have a shared benefit if they're successful and able to export and create wealth for us by getting us those higher paying jobs because they're profitable. And, and because a lot of us tend to think within the borders of New Brunswick and then some of those issues around, you know, monopolies and, and, and that we discussed earlier, people lose a sense that we're actually talking about companies that bring significant wealth and job creation based on their ability to control their costs and, and, uh, and be able to compete with global, global companies. Well, and the interesting part is New Brunswickers make high use of globally competitive companies for their consumption goods. The level of imports in this province since 2010 has far outstripped what we export. And in a lot of cases, this is what's been hollowing out even our retail and service sector. We import a lot of things like IT services. We're not encouraging homegrown companies. We're instead encouraging companies that have thin margins to go and find a, a lower cost service or one that they can do more reliably uh, because we have this attitude that it's okay to import. Uh, there's right. been some great work by Pierre-Marcel Desjardins and colleagues looking at just how much more GDP we would have if we could just substitute voluntarily to more purchase local. Uh, when I proposed that the public sector could be a driver of that by having an ethic of not going to big box stores and not importing less absolutely necessary, I got called a commie uh, by the same people I was encouraging to join me. But it, it's, it's attitudinal. If you want your local business to thrive, then you can't go in and basically tell them, well, I can get this from Amazon for this. Amazon's not paying that property tax downtown. Amazon's not hiring the person who lives next door to you. You're getting a delivery guy. That's it. And so we have to make a choice as a society if we want to be consumers. Uh, is it all about getting it at the cheapest price or is it about helping a community while you get that consumption? And so the New Brunswickers are a conflicted bunch. We hate big companies in New Brunswick, but we're more than happy to make them profitable if they're not here. It's it's funny. It, it made me think just of like a quick personal aside. I was I was sitting around in my living room last night watching uh, election uh, election results come in from the U.S. And uh, my daughter Ella, who's nine, I don't know how we got on this conversation. Her, but she uh, she decided that she wanted to figure out where everything in the room was made and came from. <laughs> and so we started looking around and just grabbing random things like there was a, uh, you know, a, a pair of nail clippers sitting around. There were throw pillows. Uh, we had clothes that obviously that we we had on that had labels on the back that we could check out. And uh, except for um, an, an, an old wallet that I, I inherited from my father uh, that was probably 40, 50 years old that was manufactured in Canada. <laughs> And uh, it's a really nice wallet. It stayed in great shape. Um, everything, uh, everything else was produced somewhere else in the world, right? And that, so that was just that small glimpse into personal consumption. Yeah. And remember that there's nothing wrong with imports if you've taken your tree and you've turned it into a huge pile of toilet paper that the world wants. And they, they instead send you things they're good at making back to you. The challenge is when you take public expenditures, so federal transfers, and they come in and we take that federal money and just buy from someone else rather than keeping it in the local economy, that's a leakage. So we have to always remember there's nothing wrong with importing if it's balanced against your exports because that's what trade is about. It's a different game altogether when you're using 
a transfer that's been taxed off of someone else and you turn around and then basically go and buy from their competitor. Uh, that's sort of not helping the economy. And it's, I think it's why all the public sector money that's been coming in since 2010 to this economy has not resulted in growth of the economy. It just led to a lot of importing. What about some other impediments? I know, obviously, the debate around taxation in in, in St. John has been a huge one uh, in, in terms of what what big companies give back in terms of taxes, uh, you know, and then and then the benefits that can be reaped if if they're taxed at low levels. Well, boy, this is a thorny area. So <laughs> I'm just going to state it. <laughs> There's no criteria on which to assess fairness of these tax levels and tax rates that are paid. And I know everyone looks at who's paying what and says it's not fair, but it's impossible to compare a refinery in St. John with an integrated major in another market. Uh, we have an exporting refinery, whereas the one that they were comparing in Burnaby is likely producing mostly for a regional market where they have some degree of control over uh, prices that are paid. So it's not the same criteria. The other thing to remember is that the hope is that when you have an employment base and you have a thriving business sector, your anchor company may not pay as much tax as you would like them to pay, but the workers that are around there are starting to sustain a commercial sector and a service sector, and it starts to get the wealth spreading around. So a century ago, the logic was you didn't try to make your money on property tax off of your anchor industry. You needed the anchor to grow your employment base, to grow your real estate values in the residential, and that would create the accessible tax base that you could do better on. If you start to get into a place where you're not growing and your uh, costs of providing services to the community are, then you have to be more intensive on your margins of taxing. And that's when you start to get into these fairness debates. Uh, the problem is if you go after large industry, believe it or not, they are footloose and they will exit. Uh, so when you start to see what happens when mills close in smaller communities, it can devastate it. And you could go back and ask if you could do it again, would you prefer to have just give them a tax concession to keep them operating? In some cases, people say no, if they're not economic, they should just leave. But in a lot of cases, the devastation to a lot of smaller communities, losing a lot of these mills over issues like a power rate going up or a property tax concession being pulled away out of fairness it's a really high cost uh, to do on a matter of principle. And it's a not popular view for me to express because right now people don't want to support business in that way. They say they should be able to make it on their own. But as Stephen Lund used to point out, there is no jurisdiction anywhere that isn't using some kind of subsidy to keep their anchor businesses around. And so we can be good neoliberals and say companies have to make it on their own two feet, no support for them. What we're going to see is they're going to exit to the places that are playing the subsidy game. And we don't have a lot of cash to play the subsidy game in the first place. So at least being friendly or considerate to business and understanding the impact of the policies you're proposing uh, would go a long way. Because every time you announce some kind of abrupt change to a cost of what they're going to bear or a tax that you may or may not put on uh, trucks driving around your city, you start to impact a lot of business decisions and you cost them a lot of time figuring out how they're going to deal with it. And so that's just where, again, it's attitudinal. And I understand that St. John has some fiscal problems to deal with and no one wants to really go after the expenditure side. But 
this is a case where municipal reform probably is one of the more important things that the Higgs government can do to try and bring some uh, stability back to the business environment. Right, and this is certainly one of those one of those issues too, where it's it's a global discussion around around fairness and and, and taxation. It's certainly the you know the same kind of conversations happening around Silicon Valley, right? Um, and and taxes paid there, so it's like it's a sunset industry problem. It's also like, and I say sunset, <laughs> I know you don't believe that, so <laughs> I put put I'm putting quotes around sunset. Um, and 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 you know, kind of newer sort of tech, you know, big the big tech titans that that we have. Uh, I, 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 another kind of a follow up question, Herb, and it's and it's something that people don't like to don't we just don't talk about much around here anymore. And and I know you coming from Alberta and knowing how important the energy sector is to that province and still is to that province and it's also important to the country for that reason is is around kind of dead debates here. Like it, it feels like you know. You know, we don't talk about that pipeline anymore that could have been built. Um, we don't talk much about natural um, gas, uh, you know, exploration and extraction right now. It's not it's not a hot topic, but but uh, you know, there were potentially very important developments that could happen here, and the natural gas one still could happen. Um, but they, you know, around the natural gas in particular, it, it a local supply would create predictability and and more affordability in terms of energy that drives industries, couldn't it? This is a really important question to ask, because if you go back even a decade, you'll probably remember there was an era where St. John was going to be an energy hub. Uh, if you go back before that, there's always been a fixation on uh, more generation. That's what got LaPro and the nuclear uh, generation to this province. There's always been an idea that uh, the region has been too reliant on electricity and not diversified enough in its uh, energy supplies. So natural gas was one that they were trying to get in, but depending on who you believe, it was a botched contract or just not done well. But the bottom line is there's not a lot of natural gas supplied to this province. And what we're always sort of struggling with is, well, are we trying to develop a resource to be a benefit to industry so it's a low cost energy source so it's cheaper to produce here is it uh, something that it's just a cleaner resource which is what we're worried about now the decarbonization or is it something like we could actually export it Uh, so lng terminals were something that were coming in as well before even the discussion of the pipeline so a decade ago energy we were going to be an energy superpower in canada and that was going to be an export-based economy that was going to make us all rich People turned against that in part because of the environmental uh, concerns that were growing and industry may or may not have done enough to uh, deal with that. But I will say most of the uh, oil majors out West were budgeting for a carbon tax well before there was even one about to be implemented. They could see it coming and they were able to handle it. It was uh, the objections were tending to come more from the businesses based on cash flows. So the smaller companies, not the larger ones. So again, our environmental footprint might have been better served by large integrated companies that were able to handle carbon pricing and actually result in a reduction in total production uh, because that market structure will tend to uh, reduce how much is produced to reduce the pressure on things like the existing pipeline infrastructure. So it's a complicated world, but we could be doing more with energy, especially natural gas uh, with Sable Island depleted. I don't think it's going to happen. I can picture that there's an opportunity 
you know, it won't happen because we won't resolve the social license. We've had five years to make some movement on Premier Gallant's five conditions. There's been no action whatsoever. When the Higgs government was elected and had promised to get back to uh, fracking without resolving those conditions, it didn't get very far. And so I think it's pretty clear that the social license in New Brunswick doesn't exist to extract that resource at this time. But that means we will potentially be an importer. So we could have an LNG terminal in Beldoon and build up a network to sort of service natural gas through that region to reduce their reliance on things like electricity with the Beldoon plant being phased out uh, in the next 10, 15 years. But we need to think about what are we using the energy for? What's its purpose? Energy East was an export play for the most part. Uh, LNG terminals as well, import-export type potential. But energy is just one of those sectors. It will make a comeback. But at the moment, our fixation or our our focus is on what can we do with renewable non-emitting sources. We've got some battles going on with small modular reactors, which have a potential to being another industry for the province that exports if we can scale and get to market in time. Uh, And there's now a battle between do we want to do SMRs? Do we want to do renewables? We're not looking at them as part of a portfolio. We're looking at them as either or. And then lurking in the background is Muskrat Falls in the Atlantic Loop, which might wipe out any sort of push for any of those things. So again, I talked before, there's a lack of certainty or clarity about how the world's going to unfold in this region. These are all just examples in the energy system where we just don't know what we're allowed to do. We don't know what the opportunities are, if they can be realized, or if it's just sort of a a great attempt, but it's not going to happen here. So SMRs, if we don't play this right, they're going to happen in Ontario or the United States, where there isn't as much opposition potentially in the population and a much more, uh, a bigger interest from the federal government in getting a win in Ontario gets them more votes than a win in New Brunswick. So we always have to worry about that as well. And, and is a lot of that just the the government not being totally sure what the public attitude is or being a bit a bit fearful around bringing clarity to some of those issues because of public attitudes? Well, clarity brings accountability. And accountability is deadly for a government uh, when the population doesn't have a strong uh, majority supporting something. And especially when you have uh, groups that are more vocal than others, if you're a politician, we're talking about your livelihood. So if people don't like what you're doing, they will get rid of you. Uh, I was just reading a quote the other day about Pierre Trudeau when he came to New Brunswick in the 70s, and he was facing a very angry population that was frustrated that they were overruling wage increases uh, because their anti-inflation policy. And Pierre Trudeau's line to New Brunswickers was, there's two things you can do if you don't like it, choose another province or choose another government. And so... <laughs> With that kind of attitude isn't one that I think a premier in New Brunswick has had of late as a luxury. Uh, it might be something that was more prominent when you had Frank McKenna with all the seats in the legislature, but certainly with our uh, majority landslides of two extra seats, you have governments that can't really be as bold or as aggressive without taking a huge risk that they may not be governing in four years. And this one-term governments has, again, been a big source of the uncertainty and instability in the business conditions. Right, because there hasn't been this sense that you can you can be decisive and do things and then get reelected. <laughs> yeah, and if you don't get reelected, the other guys promise to undo the things you just spent four years doing. And so every time you do that, we shuffle the deck chairs. Even in a government department or an agency, one estimate I heard is every time you reorganize that 
uh, entity, you put them back about 12 to 18 months before they're fully operational again. And so when we pay don't pay attention to just that level of disruption in service and ability to do what they've been tasked to do, that's a huge loss in terms of momentum if we're trying to do something like get an industry going or create new policies to help people who are disadvantaged. It just becomes too hard to predict where we're going to go. And it makes it hard to really be patient living in a place when it's just one flip-flop after another just because you're changing governments. I had a, a couple of uh, what I sort of came to see as bookended conversations uh, on the podcast several weeks ago where I had a conversation with uh, Donald Savoy that I mentioned to you uh, about his book on Irving Oil. And, and I became very immersed in the story, not of the politics around around uh, around Irving Oil and, and that we debate often, but more around the mechanics of, of building that, you know, that empire, um, you know, since the early 19th century. Uh, to now, if you go back to the early generations of that, of that family, and so I became very intrigued by a lot of the stories uh, around, uh, you know, innovations at Irving Oil and, and and you know the building of the refinery and the building of the gas station networks, and and then uh, you know a couple weeks later I had a conversation with um, with Gordon Pitts about uh, QN Labs and and Radian Six and the book he'd written, and I saw some real echoes there when in the stories about, you know, Brian Flood and Chris Newton and that kind of single-minded entrepreneurial um, drive, you know, to create things, right? And, and you know, it, at one time it was, it was Casey Irving and, uh, and, and now it was, you know, tech, tech titans, you know, tech entrepreneurs, but they were, there was that root entrepreneurial drive, right, that was behind everything. And it, it, I got to thinking about that after you and I had a, a, a conversation early this week about incumbent industries and, and, you know, which are traditional ones. And, and then, you know, the ones that we are trying to go now around, uh, you know, cybersecurity and, and other parts of the tech economy. And you said something to me that really resonated around you just you, you just wish that people would just get greedy and want to do it all. Are we are we? having the wrong conversation when we talk about, well, you know, these are the ones we need to put our energy into versus these, these other ones. Yeah. And that debate between what's we consider to be sunset and what we consider to be modern. Right? So the, the interesting part is that the modern uh, perception really comes with sort of an aspirational view of some members of society that as we get more educated, we want to be seen as sophisticated. So as I've said in presentations, Hewers of wood isn't sexy in Davos. So when a prime minister goes over, he doesn't want to say we're one of the best forest producers in the globe. He wants to say we've got a division of Google in Waterloo. That's more exciting for him. And so there's a sense in which there's things that our companies have been globally amazing at in terms of even our mining companies operate over all over the world. Uh, we have companies that are able to sell all over the place. So a lot of entrepreneurial success. The key focus in a lot of these businesses, including if you go to energy, tech, wherever, success comes from that kind of irrational focus that most of us would see. Like most of us would have quit where Brian Flood kept going. No, most of us would never have had the guts to bet it all in the way he did and hope it would work out. Uh, the Casey Irving story wasn't that different when you read about what he went through when he moved to St. John in the Savoie book. So when you think about that singular focus and someone's going to be going out on a limb, if you're government and society, do you watch them and just say that guy's nuts and let him dangle on the end of the rope uh, to see if he makes it or not? Or does the community kind of get behind it and say, 
we want to see this guy succeed. What do we need to do to make this happen? And the Unicorn in the Woods book is really an amazing one to read for what was happening with all the different parts around those guys as these ideas were coming towards product, towards getting towards market. At key moments, you had a government department or a government agency coming in and saying, we're in, even if they didn't understand what the company was yet. Uh, in other cases, you had a government say, yes, this is definitely working. Let's get going with this. You had that ecosystem from MBTEL that was here to support a lot of the needs as they came up. Like they did decide they needed some manager type people. And where are you going to find them? It turns out they're around from MBTEL. If you try to do that today, do we have that same ecosystem? We lost a major asset when MBTEL exited. Uh, so in a lot of cases, you want to think about we have to create conditions for that sort of uh, irrational person as we see it as normal people uh, to go out and chase and get greedy and want to get it all. Like no one ever gets rich by thinking moderate. The people who really succeed and hit that home run, they had an irrational goal. And often you'll find they're disappointed in what they've achieved because as well as it worked out, it isn't as much as they expected to get. So when I read about Jerry Pond sort of lamenting, we haven't seen the third unicorn since 2010. That's the mindset. It's not that we got two, aren't we great? It's kind of like there's almost a disappointment we didn't get the next one. And what are we doing wrong that that hasn't occurred? That's sort of the attitude that was around this province up until around 2010. And it's been disappearing a bit ever since. And maybe it's because the guys that were really driving it are getting older and losing energy. Maybe it's because they just view it's not as easy it was just because before it, the place was a little more footloose when you read the Pitts book. And now it's sort of much harder to figure out who you're supposed to work with, who's going to give you the approval. And uh, one of the, just on the entrepreneur thing, one of the views I like is an economist. We always have this view that it's the market that matters, not the individual. So in our view, there shouldn't be a Casey Irving if markets are efficient because he didn't see anything any different from anyone else. And if he wasn't here, we would have had a different entrepreneur. Business studies looks at it differently. The market has all kinds of imperfections and problems. The entrepreneur is the problem solver who figures out how to short the market, how to get around the problem, how to do things in a better way. And so these individuals do matter. And this tenacity or grit or commitment to place seems to be something about New Brunswick that really leads to what most of us view as a bit irrational, that the same entrepreneurs in any other province, any other country, would probably be megalomillionaires type things, but they've decided to try and do it here. And so that's where it's kind of fun to think about. The real asset of this province, uh, in addition to the natural resources, is really the commitment of its people to the place. And you don't have that the same way in a lot of other provinces because we all got per turfed out when the economy got tough. We moved around. We don't have the same kind of commitment to place if you grew up in Ontario like I did as a maritimer seems to have. And maybe that's the asset we need to be playing off of more if we want to grow these companies and get the economy going. Uh, kind of on, on that point, um, another conversation that I was having uh, with, uh, with Blair Hislop and Rosalind Hislop from Mrs. Dunster's, we were having this conversation around uh, the, their admiration of, of the, the tech sector and that ability, you know, since, since the NBATEL era, era to support each to, to support the other entrepreneurs in our ecosystem. So you have, and Jerry Pond's a great example of someone who took great care and pride in, in trying to nurture other entrepreneurs and grow 
other companies and, and you see around the region, you know, incubators and accelerators and that kind of support in the tech sector uh, across the Atlantic. Uh, and it's, and it's characteristic of the tech sector generally, right? Globally. And, uh, Blair Hislop was making a point around, you know, the food industry and lo- wanting to see, uh, the, the, the food industry start to grow with that same kind of ethic of, of supporting, of entrepreneurs, supporting entrepreneurs, uh, and then that kind of mentorship become a more important feature. It's kind of to that, to your point around the people. And it, it kind of leads me to a question, you know, for you around, uh, in manufacturing. And I guess the food sector is part of that. Is, is there a place for uh, the bigger companies, uh, working more with smaller companies in terms of, of innovation and supply chains? Like, is, is that being maximized and is, is there an opportunity there? Well, there's definitely an opportunity there and, uh, to be fair to the large companies, they are playing that role. But again, when you have when you're a globally competitive company and you can source things from anywhere and work with uh, innovators and entrepreneurs anywhere, we need to think about how do we make the companies that could potentially feed into that supply chain uh, competitive with the alternatives that aren't in New Brunswick or aren't in the Atlantic region. And so, if we create a situation where you're a small startup but you can't find any labor or you can't get a break on your rent to get you through a low revenue period, or we just don't have the access to capital, how are you supposed to be able to deliver uh, the service or the product at the same timeline and at the same cost as a company that's much larger based in Ontario? And so this is a case where we have to think about not just the competitiveness of the ultimate company that we want to do the mentoring and to do the procuring, we need a competitive supply chain as well. And that's where, again, business conditions become pretty critical all the way through. So when you think about what a government can do, it can target a, a subsidy or a support to an individual or a company or can work on the broad based things like streamlining regulation, making business easier to do. And we're doing a project right now using World Bank methodology called the Ease of Doing Business Index to try and measure just how New Brunswick compares to it'll be primarily Ontario, but 300 other jurisdictions. And some of what we're seeing is that historically things that during McKenna were getting much better on the red tape and regulation. But definitely when you get to the current period, we kind of have on paper a reasonable system. But in practice, there are some challenges for businesses, just the number of things they have to go through, even the number of forms or who to talk to. And I think this is why the current government has gone with a small business navigator But again, if you get into tech or procurement, or if you want to get into something that works with the large companies, it's not clear how you build those relationships or what's the gateway uh, even to get in there. But my feeling is if you look at things like um, something as simple as cybersecurity, there's been a lot of interest in trying to make sure that companies along your supply chain, if you're going to be using just-in-time delivery and digital communications, you need companies that are in the digital world. So we need to upgrade a lot of these small uh, suppliers, but they also have to have secure uh, digital operations. So if you're going to be networked to someone else's database, you can't be a hacking risk to let someone else get in. So all these pieces are kind of connected. We could be growing cybersecurity along with growing the supply chain into the manufacturing sector just by creating stronger uh, networks of smaller companies that are competitive and have the margins that they can make the investments they need to compete with some of the existing suppliers that these companies have elsewhere. 
What, what special challenges is COVID-19 presenting? How has this changed the way you see manufacturing evolve here? Well, COVID's, the short run effect has just been an immediate increase in labor intensive production because of the PPE, um, social distancing if your facility is not set up for it. So it's like a loss of productivity in the short run. So over the long run, I think that can be addressed by companies that uh, are healthy will just figure out, uh, expand a expand a facility so there's more room, invest in some of the more automated type things to make it less labor intensive. And that part's all fine. Their bigger risk is really what's going to happen in global markets. So if we go through a global downturn, and this is the risk of the current U.S. election, if the U.S. stays isolationist and things like softwood lumber tariffs, aren't resolved. What we're really looking at is in the next year or two is something more like um, 1981, 1982, where it's just a drop in demand for what we produce. And then that will be a pretty grim outcome. There's not much your companies can do other than hope they're healthy enough to hold on till business conditions recover. And the pressure will be on government to start deciding which companies they want to keep with supports or deferrals of taxes owing and things along those lines and which ones they're going to let go. So the uncertainty over COVID has been on that front. The other one that was probably unintended was the longer that the the CERB benefit, the CERB, has been allowed to go, it appears to have impacted on labor supply in a way that wasn't intended. It was a terrific short-term policy to get people through a hard lockdown when they really weren't allowed, able to earn and had to pay bills. But increasingly, it's led to a problem that there's now a strong work disincentive that economists are identifying. Uh, they're sort of showing because you get your CERB clawed back, there's now a, a really high marginal tax rate on CERB recipients if they start to go back to work, which is leaving a lot of people on the sidelines instead of going out to participate in jobs that are available right now at pretty good pay. And so this is where there's been a lot of requests from even the premier of New Brunswick to the federal government to pay more attention to the work disincentive problems in these short-term relief programs that now are extending into long-term employ, uh, non-employment support. On that labor issue is, is also the, this, the obvious slowing down of immigration efforts because of border restrictions and COVID-19. Is, is that going to be, is that going to hamper our ability to grow, just not being able to grow the workforce in the way we wanted to through immigration? at least in the short term? Well, we were doing, we were making some great strides on immigration. So I don't want to sound too negative on this, but the numbers we were bringing in were still relatively small. We needed a lot more uh, newcomers to come in. But what we should be doing in the meantime is because we're not going to solve this with higher numbers uh, for the next five years, the way things are going. The federal government just can't process them quick enough. And then the bigger challenge we have is, because we don't do a good job of integrating newcomers into our labor market, we lose a lot of high skill workers to other regions because they get fed up waiting around for jobs. So one of the stories I've been learning from some of my former students and research associates who are newcomers is they're given advice not to report their full education credentials. So when they apply for jobs, don't indicate that you have a master's degree because they'll rule you out for being overqualified. So we have a situation that we're crowding highly talented newcomers into survival jobs to the point where they have to sort of hide what they're capable of just to have a hope of getting the job that the Canadians really don't want to take. And that's just wrong, because when you look at the talent level and the experience, like a lot of these newcomers 
have experience in extremely large corporations in other parts of the world. They understand international marketing. They understand sales. They understand all of the productivity type programs that we want to bring in here. We're not using them in those roles to help businesses be better. We're using them in largely administrative, low-paying jobs. And it's just, we can't we can't continue to waste talent like that and then say we need more immigration to solve our problem. We need to be using this COVID period to get a lot better and more innovative about integrating the newcomers that are here into jobs that fully use their talents. Right. And, and there's all kinds of problems that you hear about concerning that too, right? And a lot of them have to do with, you know, cultural adjustments and just the province changing. Because one of the things that, you know, we looked into at, at Huddle on a reporting level is, is you have immigrants also that, that simply don't get calls for interviews because, because of the names on their resumes and, and the, those preconceived notions of communication and language, right? So you hear those things um, in, in addition to the points you're making as well. Well, one, one example I'll point out is because I hear this culture and language stuff all the time, none of it's actually true. Just because someone has a slightly different way to word a sentence than we're used to doesn't mean they can't communicate. And so a lot of it's we're just not familiar with how they would choose to organize their words. But the meaning of the sentence is clear. And so <laughs> we run into that. But one I've noticed is that a common complaint will be about a newcomer's email seems to have a lot of typos. Now, I receive a lot of emails, and I'll just say everyone's email has a lot of typos, including mine, because when it's a Canadian emailing someone, we don't tend to worry about it if they misspell a word because we're not, we assume they can speak the language and everything. But our bias is that when we see a newcomer make the mistake of a typo or an odd word, we just assume that there's a severe language deficiency and we write them off. And that's the kind of sort of hidden bias that we get a lot of this training on campus to deal with hidden bias and to try and move away from preconceived notions about who we're talking to and things like that. And it, that's sort of what we need to do societally is just start to look at people as what can they, what are they good at? Uh, what are they capable of? And maybe if it's going to take a bit of time so that they can speak the Queen's English like you prefer them to speak, being a bit more patient with that. Uh, historically, immigrants that came to Canada, a lot of them never even learned English, but they still managed to function in factories with an English and French speaking workforce. So our predecessors seem much better at figuring out how to work with newcomers than we are. And in part, it's because the newcomers that we bring in aren't competing with the factory hands of old. They're competing with the high skill workers that are Canadian born. And frankly, Canadians like to protect the high paying jobs in Canada for Canadian born. It's as simple as that. We're denying newcomers the ability to compete for the same jobs. On on the labor force issue, um, what about what role does automation play in all this? Well, automation. It's funny because the main narrative you'll hear is that robots are going to take our jobs. You can't tax a robot, therefore they're all bad. It's a thinking that comes from a closed economy that you can either produce with a person or you can produce with a robot, but you still have the same amount of stuff produced. In a small open economy like New Brunswick, that's not how it works because our market's not here. Our market is somewhere else. If we get better at doing something, then we sell more, we produce more. So what the robots and automation would do in New Brunswick, particularly when we're scarce on workers, is we would raise the productivity of the workforce that we have that would lower the cost of producing and that would make us more competitive to gain market share. So the impact of automation in a province like New Brunswick is completely opposite to a situation like the United States. 
where robots are displacing labor at, for a net loss in labor income. In a place like New Brunswick, if we start adding robots and we get more productive, we steal market share. We might actually wind up adding to total employment because it's a source of competitive advantage. Population comes in due to the, the higher wages, due to the robots raising our productivity. And it's a different cycle, and it's one that we need to think about more. And we also need to consider cases where automation is not straightforward to do. We need to have more organizations like an RPC, the Research Productivity Council, helping companies sort of troubleshoot how they can get the machinery or the techniques in there to increase that productivity. It may not be full automation, but you can get towards that. In other cases, we're just moving towards uh, more digitalization. It may not even be automation, but just better use of information and production so that you don't have the same dead time with your uh, workers waiting for things to arrive for them to work on uh, so that you have more continuous production in your flow. And so robots, in a way, are just a simpler way to get around organizing your labor force. And the more labor intensive you are, the more difficult it is to organize them as efficiently as a single machine could do it. But it is possible. But this is why I think there's uh, hopeful signs coming out of ACOA and Opportunities New Brunswick, a strong focus on getting this kind of digitalization, advanced manufacturing, and just general productivity improvement in our producers. So I think they get it. And so I'm quite hopeful that this is a positive step for the province. Well, thanks a lot, Herb. I, I, I want to close by you know bringing the conversation back around to the beginning. You know, you you come to the province, uh, you know, and 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 you know the headlines you're seeing are is can we save can New Brunswick be saved and uh, you know a, a few years later you're you know you're in the midst of your work at the university and 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 the roundtable on manufacturing competitiveness how do you see things now that you've been here for a while and you've been studying it closely what like what are the the things you're optimistic about going forward and the things you'd like to see get done well, the interesting thing that I've come to learn is that the province never needed saving. It's just the tragedy of New Brunswick is that the opportunities are so large and it's just no one really agrees on which ones to take advantage of. So in a lot of cases, it's just kind of watching watching that opportunity sliding by. And so you think we could have a larger population, things could be better, but someone would have to do something different if that's what they want to do. But it's not the case where we're going to downward spiral and going uh, to oblivion. That's not the case at all. There's so much strength in this economy, particularly the people, as I've mentioned. And if you go along Route 2 from Edmonston down to Moncton, the growth of the economies along that corridor is as large as anywhere in Canada. It's growing at the same rate as Halifax. So there's a lot of situations where I think we've uh, done a good job of getting the feds to help us out by crying poor and oh, save us. But in actual fact, we're squandering opportunity that when we see those federal dollars come in, instead of feather bedding, we should be using them to drive uh, more productive opportunities. And I'm not out of line here. If you go back to 2016, the Atlantic growth strategy that the federal government introduced was supposed to be all about that. So if you want to pick some infrastructure to think about for opportunity, what are we going to do with last mile broadband or are we going to upgrade the broadband we have in the cities? These are the choices we have to make about do we want growth uh, unconditionally so that we can just get more wealth or do we want to think about growth conditional on making sure that we have equal benefits all across the playing field, which may or may not work well. So in terms of it, it's a long winded way to say that 
the province isn't the basket case McLean's made it out to be. Uh, and what we really need, in a sense, is just more education of New Brunswickers about what we actually have here, where the challenges are, and why we need to just do things like take a hard look at what we can do to get the Northeast economy going again and St. John. And in a lot of cases, it's not expensive. It's just changing our attitudes. All right. Well, thanks very much, Herb. Yeah, no problem. It was fun. You've been listening to the latest episode of Huddle Home Office. And thanks, Herb, for the great chat. The Home Office is produced by me, Mark Legier, Shree Sletson, and Tyler McLean. And thank you very much, Trevor Nichols, for the great uh, intro chat. Now, please subscribe to Home Office, if you already don't, on your favorite podcast platform, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Stitcher. And uh, also, if you love the show, please recommend it to a friend. We will talk to you next week.